0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. The new film, Hell or High Water, looks to a pair of Texas brothers on a crime spree, but it's about a lot more than bank robbers on the run. Hell or High Water is something rare. It's a film for adults, and by that I mean it's smart, it has something to say, and it doesn't condescend to the audience. This starts with the script by Taylor Sheridan, who also wrote the excellent Sicario. His script delivers both a crime drama and a social commentary.
1: You may be hearing a lot of things about me and your uncle.
0: Whatever I hear, I won't believe No, you believe it. I did all of it.
2: Those banks loaned the least they could, so they could swipe your mama's land. It's a big bank. It's too big. That's what she said. They
0: took everything from your family.
2: This is your chance to take you back. On the ground! Paying them back with their own money. Well, if that ain't Texan, I don't know what is
1: hear about these bank robberies? I may have one hunt left in me.
0: <laughs> it's a good thing it
1: does. More down it. Every step of the way. They know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to raise a certain amount. That's my guess. I think I got these boys figured.
0: He's got no record. He's never been arrested. You don't fit the bill, Marcus. <laughs> you
1: want to get us killed? That's up, for-
0: Got to be smart, We're ways from being finished. No, no, no,
1: we'll We're gonna need SWAT up here.
0: Get back! These boys, they aren't done yet. Tanner, played by Ben Foster, and Toby, played by Chris Pine, are Texas brothers that set off on a crime spree robbing banks. They're stealing too little money to generate FBI interest, but more than enough to catch the eye of an about to retire Texas Ranger named Marcus Hamilton. Hamilton's played by Jeff Bridges, who borrows a few notes from Tommy Lee Jones' character in No Country for Old Men. Hamilton and his partner Alberto Parker, played by Gil Birmingham, set out to investigate the robberies. And along the way, they discover that while the brothers are committing the overt crime, the real villains may be the Banks themselves. Here's what Parker, who's part Mexican and part Native American, has to say in the film.
1: All this was my ancestors' land. But at least folks took it. And now it's been taken from there. Except it ain't no army doing it. It's those sons of bitches right there.
0: Director David McKenzie fell in love with Sheridan's script, and he directs the film. For this podcast, I'll be speaking with both Mackenzie and actor Gil Birmingham. In the interview, McKenzie talks about how the film looks to the open wounds of America right now. Hell or high water suggests a change may be brewing. Some, like the brothers in the film, may be willing to fight back, even if it means breaking the law and paying a price. But I saw one review that damned the film as leftist propaganda. That's a little too simplistic of an interpretation. Sure, there's a liberal slant to the view that banks are evil, but that's nothing new, and it's not limited to just those on the left. And these gun-toting brothers who are willing to kill to secure the financial future of Toby's kids don't exactly come across as Bernie Sanders supporters. In fact, Their reaction to their economic situation could even be seen as reflecting something of what Trump supporters seem to be feeling fed up with. So rather than being left or right-winged, the film just seems to be capturing a snapshot of the general state of anxiety and unease in our country today. It does use genre trappings to reflect some social realities, much in the same way as the 60s and 70s films like Easy Rider or Last Picture Show did. It's refreshing to see a film where characters throughout the movie are well-developed, where good and bad is not black and white, and where social realities are not sidestepped to make for a more palatable commercial product. Hell or High Water is a throwback to the gritty indie films of the 70s. It leaves you with plenty to think about and to savor after the credits roll, and there's a lot to appreciate. So here's my interview with director David McKenzie and actor Gil Birmingham. They came to San Diego to host a screening of the film and a Q&A. First of all, how did this project come to you? Because you are not a native Texan and this is set in Texas. So how did you come upon this project? It
2: was a script that uh, was given to me and I read it very quickly and very had a very sort of immediate reaction to it. I knew nothing of... of, 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 of where it came from or whatever, my agent just gave it to me, and and I instantly fell in love with it. It had a very strong sense of place. It had a very strong shape of narrative that went from you know from from robberies into it, it, into something that felt like it was you know really quite profound about the state of the West and of America itself. Uh, uh, into into some action elements, and it seemed like a really good balance of all sorts of things. It uh, it it to me, I'm a big fan of 1970s American cinema. And, and it, it had an element of that to it, but it also felt very contemporary. It, f- it felt like it was, you know, it was about things that are really kind of uh, alive in America right now. And uh, I, I, it really excited me. I had spent a little bit of time in, in West Texas before, and I, and, and I really was impressed by the kind of landscape and personality of the place. Uh, so when this script came along, it was like, okay, I can channel that into this. And, uh, and it felt like a really perfect match.
0: Well, your film is one that's probably hard to promote because it doesn't fit neatly into one particular little box. So what kind of influence did you have in terms of kind of the different genres that were playing into this?
2: The influences, I mean, as I mentioned, the American cinema of the 70s uh, in particular uh, were my influences. I've I've made nine films and and I've always sort of tried to kind of mess with the genre in in one way or another. I mean, this film is a, a bank robbery movie. It's a Western. It's a buddy movie. It's a road movie and it is a kind of snapshot of America now. And so it's a kind of juggle of those things. But I think people are regarding it as overall as a Western. Um, and, and, you know, the themes of the Western, the themes of, of, of that landscape and, and sort of outlaws in that landscape uh, feel like they're, they're a resonant part of it.
0: Well, you have Jeff Bridges in it, and you mentioned 70s films. So was Last Picture Show anything the, on the, the landscape? The
2: first robbery takes place in Archer City, which is where Last Picture Show was set. We didn't actually shoot it there. We shot it in New Mexico. But, but the first thing I did was go to Archer City, and it hasn't really changed in the 45 years since that film was made. It's incredible. you know. The, the picture, picture house is still... It was burnt down, but the shell of it's there. Uh, and it was a shame that we couldn't get Jeff... To, to to return to his roots there. Um but uh, in spirit he did by you know um jeff and gill's characters investigating that first robbery and turning up in in what's normally Archer City in the film. Talking of Jeff's early work, um Fat City and Thunderbolt and Light Lightfoot were definite references to me. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is sort of two kind of outlaws on the run in, in the Midwest and and and, and 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 it's kind of it's a got a real lovely tone to it. So it was kind of fun to be able to to work with Jeff and to tap into some of those early films that he did.
0: And Gil, you are from Texas. So how did you feel he captured that environment?
1: Well, I was born in Texas, but um, I was a product of a military family. So we left when I was about two years old. Um, I still have family there, but even Beyond that, my father was in law enforcement for 30 years, so I had that to draw upon. And we, and we had a great technical advisor, Joaquin Jackson, who's an iconic Texas ranger, had written a couple of books about his experiences, uh, and he was there on the set with us. So there were some wonderful things to draw on.
0: And you got to work with Jeff Bridges because you guys are partners in the film. And how did that rapport work out? Because you said there was something behind the scenes that kind of helped you guys fall into a nice groove.
1: Well, you know, Jeff is the dude. He's, uh, he's the man, I'll tell you. He's iconic in, in the acting world, um, and for a good reason. Our first connection was really through music. We had both been playing music since we were uh, young boys, and uh, so we, we brought that in as our, our uh, kind of creative expressing together, which just uh, you know crossed over into the acting and, and really opened up the world for both of us to feel very at ease. From a very um, early part of the of the show,
2: it was a joy to experience the guys playing and and how that playing how, how that learning to kind of read each other and and improvise with each other in, musically kind of fed into you know a lot of what they were doing acting wise and there, there are certain parts of the film where. Where it was literally kind of improvised like that, and it, watching that kind of musical banter is, you know, a fantastic kind of experience for, for me. And I, I really love the dynamic between Gill and Jeff, and 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 how you start with a very antagonistic, quite politically incorrect relationship, and then and then you, you you go underneath it and you start realizing that there's deeper and deeper affection, and you know, ultimately kind of love for each other. It's a sort of odd couple relationship in a really interesting way, and I, and I think that the guys did an amazing job with it.
0: All right. You're the one who brought up this notion of politically incorrect. And there's some interesting elements to the relationship between these two Texas Rangers, because Jeff Bridges character kind of prods you a little bit with racial jokes. How did you guys want that to play out? Because we are in a time when there are a lot of people who are very sensitive to these kind of things. So how did you want that to kind of play into the film and and how did you get it to work?
2: I can answer that. For, I mean, it, it was in the script, and I think it's a reflection of some of the characters in that world, as well as a reflection, or of, of a journey that, that, that the characters go on, and I, and I, I felt it was very important not to flinch from it, and I, I'm sensitive. I'm you know politically correct myself, probably most of the time, but I think that the the the, the film needed to go down that line, and I think it's you know it is a, you know one needs to be sensitive to. All, all issues but also one one can't shy away from them and so i think that uh, you know we were we were very very awkward and sensitive in dealing with it but we 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 agreed that we would that we would you know aim at the target and 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 we did and i think that the way that jeff and uh, and gil approached it was you know really sensitive and, and really interesting how 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 it it, it 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 sort of evolved but but what do you think Gil?
1: Yeah, I, at first when I had read it, you know, those are the things that kind of were red flags for me. And I go, well, how do you make this work? And, and um, you know, how do you retort to these things that don't become this antagonistic relationship between these two characters that really care and they've got each other's back? But then as you watch the movie and you you, re, uh, you come to realize that Jeff is in a place in his life where he's lost his wife, you know, prior two years prior. And he's being forced to resign from a job that he's identified as himself with for his whole life. And this is the best for, you know, that generation that he came from to be able to express that. But it, but it happens in real life as well in families. You know, we will find triggers with our siblings or and you, you'll push those little buttons. And, and I made an interesting observation. I guess, I don't know, you probably saw the film so many times when you were editing, but there's a reference Jeff makes to my character, you know, as an Indian and, and being fond of the bottle, you know. And if you watch the movie, I'm, my character is the only one that doesn't drink. So, I think you know the uh, the behaviors are are speak for themselves. But the dialogue provided an opportunity for them kind of to to express their affection in a kind of twisted way.
0: And he kind of teaches you to prod back as well.
1: Maybe one of these bank robbers is going to want a gunfight, and I can dodge my retirement in a blaze of glory. Well, I seen you shoot. Won't be much glory in it. <laughs> Yeah, I had I had some good zingers there, you know, but for time constraints, they they kind of got edited out. But, well, that's uh,
2: not true, Gil. You got you oh, know, my you're, you're the one. Who, you started all by saying I've seen you shoot. Well, um, that's true. Uh, you know, so so yeah. But the
1: one that was missing is when I make reference to his ancestry wearing skirts.
2: Yes, I know. Well, that's because I'm Scottish. I wasn't well, very keen, I
1: wasn't very <laughs> that keen
0: was on a that. Idea, idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, now we're uh, getting to the root. <laughs> <Real.
1: laughs>
0: One of the nice elements that you wove in is this consciousness of kind of the social and economic conditions that all these characters are living in. And there's signage constantly when they're driving down the road that you see about debt relief or about jobs. How important was that to you to get it in and and how did you want to do it so that it, it didn't kind of hit people over the head?
2: It was. In, it's interesting because that that is the backdrop of of the story. That's part of the reason why the, the brothers take their desperate, uh, you know, plan and, uh, uh, into action. It was always about putting those things into into, into an organic context. So they're all they're, they're happening while other things are happening, and about a balance. I actually, there was a, there was at one point a bit more, and we kind of we, we thought, okay, we're really you know, hitting this on the head head a little bit. So it's you know, as with all elements, in a way of, of making a film from a director's point of view, it's all about the balance of things and get and, and, and just getting things thing things working right. Uh, but yeah, the the the. All of those signs were signs that we kind of saw on the road. You know, they're, they're a reflection of a reality out there. Obviously, we had to kind of engineer them so that they, weren't, they weren't about individual banks or whatever. But but uh, we were trying to show you know a reality that we that we saw in our travels in uh, um, in in both uh, Texas and New Mexico.
0: Gil, you had a really interesting. Piece of dialogue where you're talking about how the land was stolen initially by armies and now it's these corporations. So how does that play into that?
1: I think that's just part of the brilliant writing that Sheridan incorporated of his own observation. He was um, he was from Texas himself, and a lot of his personal experiences were reflected in the film. But it it um, you know it addresses the the idea of of this perpetual cycle that's always kind of gone on, gone on through through history. You know, first the land being taken from the natives and now, you know, by force of a weaponry, and now it's being done by corporations and banks. And I think that's what people will probably relate to as they see these things, this kind of, as they impact them, you know, presently, uh, and the economic conditions that they're experiencing now.
2: That speech is, in a way, it's a sort of the heart of the film, you know. And I think, uh, you know, the, the idea that of the Comanche or the land of the, of the Comanche, which is that kind of part of Texas into into, into New Mexico, being kind of reclaimed in a, in a very different way, it, it is one of the kind of big kind of you know thematic echoes of the film. And uh, and and Gill's kind of speech in, in there, it sort of really sums things up.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because you depict this kind of gun culture that's in Texas as well. I mean, everybody's got a gun, the, the robbers do, as well as the people that they're robbing. You, you talk about the fact that, you know, initially this land is stolen through that kind of violence. Uh, but now you're, you're at this cross point where you've got your your characters trying to rob the banks that are robbing them in a very different way. And it's a very interesting kind of intersection of all that.
2: That's what, in a way, feels like, is, is why the film is topical now and, and, and why, why it has some resonance and also, you know, why the subject is, is attractive to us to, to enter in and try, and try and express.
1: I've been poor my whole life. It's like a disease passing from generation to generation. But not my boys. Not anymore.
0: Good morning, folks! Open the drawers!
1: Y'all are gonna steal my gun too? When you steal from you, we steal from the bank.
0: I'm interested in why you chose Nick Cave um, to compose because he did a worked on a brilliant western, uh, The Proposition, and I don't know, did that have any influence on why you yeah, chose him? Nick
2: Cave and Warren Ellis, to be fair, yeah. they're, they are they they're equal partners, um, and uh, we're, you know, my editor and myself are fans of their work, um, and. We we had a we, we had a quite a lot of country music in the film that uh, needed a foil and uh, we just, you know, we, we, I, something I really like about what Nick and Warren do, that, that music that feels very epic, but doesn't feel grandiose. Uh, and they kind of get that balance right and, and, and some atonal stuff that they put in and and. and uh, so we kind of we really wanted them to do it. We were actually using a lot of music, including music from the proposition uh, as temp score um, and then we gave it to them a little bit embarrassed saying, "Well, we've already put some of your music in there and they responded and did a did a brilliant job and uh, and, and they're lovely gentlemen as well I really really enjoyed working with them
0: incredibly talented. You guys were here in San Diego last night for a screening where you did a Q&A. And one of the things that came up that I was really interested in is this notion that you said you didn't have a script supervisor on the set. And explain what, the, why that you went that route.
2: There are certain things that I do as a director to, to try and, and, and maximize the amount of freedom that we have on set. I don't have clapper boards uh, i don't have script supervisor i, I don't have monitors uh, or video village and, and and the idea of that is you have a more flexible environment on the set you don't have people crowded around looking at monitors you don't have you don't have all this sort of bank of people sort of supervising what's going on and it means that you have a that as a director you have a direct relationship with your creative team and 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 you minimize the amount of kind of baggage and I, and and this is this is how I like to make films and i've done it several times and I, and i you know it, it translating that, which I've done on a British context to an American context, was quite hard to persuade people. But, uh, but I think people began to realize that, that it worked. And, and, and I, I have a feeling that the, the actors, and I'd love to ask Gil about it, really enjoyed the, the comparative you know, uh, lack of barriers um, between, between what they were doing and what, and what we were doing. Uh, but, but what did you think, Gil?
1: Oh, I loved it. I mean, it, I think uh, the next project I did after that was so stark Stark to me because all of a sudden somebody's jumping in the middle of the scene. You correct me with the, the dialogue, and I go, where'd you come from? get get out of here, but you know, and the continuity I think for the for the inner the, uh, relationships between the characters, was so much more accessible. You know, you're not getting breaks. I, I love the story that the makeup people they told me that you had talked to them, and they said, listen, once we start filming, just stay out of the picture. Don't even come near. And they're always so concerned, you know, so they so they got their binoculars and they're watching from afar and see if anything, you know, absolutely has to be yeah. taken care of. But it provided such a wonderful uh, you know, freedom, like you, like he, uh, David spoke about, and the continuity of the emotional interactions and dynamics of the characters.
2: A lot of people were asking, it means that, people, that, that, that the cast and everyone else asked me the questions and, and I, I, therefore I know what the answers are rather than people trying to second guess. But also we had a quite a tight shoot. It was only um, a, a seven-week shoot. So without all these things getting in the way, you can get more done in a day, um, which is another kind of uh, sort of bonus thing, I guess.
0: You had also mentioned that the script supervisor was sometimes the person that people went to for information rather than you. And well, that's I mean, one of the reasons why you didn't want to have yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, or... I mean that, that, in
2: the past, in the yeah. past, that's what I noticed about script supervisors is, is that people don't want to bother the director, so they start, you know, having conversations, you know, side by conversations about uh, uh, things, and you suddenly find as a Chinese whispers, and the things spiral off into a completely new direction, and then you, that, and, and it's just, it, it's not not the right use of time. I have to be very fair that there was a script supervisor that the studio was sort of pushed on us, but he, I, I, I was able to get him in the edit, and the poor chap had to work late hours trying to look, go, go, cycle through our, our, our footage. So um, uh, Jean Paul, um, much appreciate your effort there. Um, but I, it was, anyways. I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's great for me to, to have, have not had that barrier between myself and, and what I was doing.
0: And you mentioned editing. Talk about your editor and about the pacing of this film because when you mention or when you promote a film as kind of a, a crime movie, we've been trained to expect this kind of fast pace and rapid cutting, and this has this wonderful sense of kind of letting things develop in this very kind of natural way.
2: Thank you. Well, well I've, the, my editor, Jake Roberts, is an extremely talented guy. I've worked with him on five films, uh, and, and we have a great rapport uh, and I think he's a great editor, and and his his instincts are are, are 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 great. But the 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 film always demanded to have different different you know shades and different and different pacings, just because of what it was. Because it started off with kind of action sequences, and then and then started to become more sort of you know about deeper things in the middle. And he needed to let that space go. And When we were shooting, we really needed to. Well, in that empty environment, you just you want to you want to let the silences do as much work as the dialogue, and uh, and and let and let let things pause out. So, it's a real editorially, it's a real you know, balancing job to try and get enough action and then enough contemplation and enough texture and all those all those things, um, and, and 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 to get that shape so the audience aren't kind of getting impatient with it and. Uh, um, you know enough clarity so the audience know what's going on, and 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 that that's kind of what the editorial process I- is about. And uh, uh, I mean, Jake Jake's a, a, a an excellent editor.
1: Oh, these boys, they aren't done yet. I'll tell you that. Okay. Yeah, well, they're patient. they just sticking to the drawers, not taking the hundreds. That's the bank's money. We can trace that. They're, they're trying to raise a certain amount, that's my guess. It's going to take a few banks to get there.
0: Part of the pacing also comes from the script. Can both of you talk a little bit about working with Taylor Sheridan's script and Gil particularly, the dialogue that he writes?
1: Uh, well, I was—I became a big fan of Taylor's writing from uh, Sicario, which was just outstanding. And then to read this and, and just how concise, you know, um, with you know not that much dialogue but conveying so much and then that leaves you know uh, the rest of it to to the director and the actors um i worked on another project uh, his third um subsequent to this a um, project called wind river and the, the Which man taylor is, directed by the way. yeah it was his directorial debut but he's just uh, an astounding and brilliant writer and he just has the gift he's gifted
2: it's interesting you say there's not very much dialogue because I think there's quite a lot of dialogue in this film.
1: Well, I, but but it's concise dialogue, you know. It's it's there's um there's not really a lot of fat to any of it.
0: Yeah, I would say yeah, it's lean. Yeah. And effective. Do either of you have a uh, closing comments about the film? Anything you want to kind of say to people before they see it?
2: Well, one of the things that's really important to me is a, the the film sort of you know, has you your thriller kind of you know bank robbery you know those kind of elements to it and the kind of you know a sort of cops and robbers elements to it but also I mean the two things it is also is a is a serious snapshot of 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 you know some of the open wounds of America right now it's not judgmental but it's kind of you you can see them but also there are some quite light moments in there there's some 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 good good entertaining comedy too and i think it's important that uh, um if if you're going to see it you, you 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 know have a feeling that there's a that there's you know both shades of light light and dark in there
0: your waitresses provided quite a bit of comedy both of them
2: yeah they're great characters the waitresses um you, you, you have a road movie element, so you, you're passing these characters, but these, these waitresses in, in, the, in the film are both really strong women who, 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 who really kind of hit the screen in a fantastic way, and um, Katie uh, Mixon and uh, uh, Margaret Bowman, who played them, did a fantastic job.
1: Now, let's see what they've got to eat here. Howdy, ma'am, how you doing today? Hot, and I don't mean the good
2: kind. So what don't you want? Pardon? What don't you want? Oh, well,
1: uh, I think i just, uh... You know, I've been working here for 44
2: years. Ain't nobody ever ordered nothing but T-bone steak and a baked potato. Except this one Told from New York tried to order trout back in 1987. We don't sell no trout. T-bone steaks. So either you don't want the corn on the cob or you don't want the green beans. So what don't you want? I'm re- really proud of what they did. And I have to say, all the other supporting cast, as well as the four leads, you know, the, the, the supporting cast really make the flavour of this film. They, you know, they're, they're, every one of them has got a you know, great attitude, great face, great performances, and, and, and they, kind of, they, they express the world of the film really well.
0: Well, you mentioned 70s film, so again, that brings up the Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, the Martin Scorsese one, which had strong waitresses. Yeah. Gil, any closing comments? Uh,
1: I would say that people, you know, it may sound like a genre that's been done down the road, you know, it's a Western, but it's it's a combination of a contemporary and a classical mixture, like a neo-Western. Um, but the different tw- uh, twists and, and the humanity, I think, that's expressed with the characters through the writing, as much as the events... That you would not expect to happen. You know, some of these things are, are set up through the film um, that have, you know, major payoffs at the end of it as well. That, uh, I don't think that anybody would guess what
2: would happen.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank both of you very much, especially for coming all the way to San Diego.
2: Thank you very much for having us. Yes. And uh, and for that thing last night. So. All right.
0: Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Hell or High Water is currently playing in cinemas, and I urge you to go see it. Coming up on Cinema Junkie will be an interview with Steve Martin talking about the world premiere of Meteor Shower at the Old Globe Theater. I'll also be previewing the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival with its founder, Miguel Rodriguez. The festival runs September 7th through the 11th here in San Diego at the Museum of Photographic Arts. Please subscribe to the Cinema Junkie podcast on iTunes or check out the archives at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.